Father God, you are great. Your name is above every other name. At your name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that you are Lord and you are Lord of all. And we acknowledge that. We recognize that this morning. We ask that you would be with us as we open your word to learn more about how we can reach the world in your name. Be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing I need you to do is open your program. Actually, don't open it, but flip it over to the back side if you would. And I need to make an acknowledgement that you probably all are aware of. And that is that your church secretary is a smart aleck. That's the issue that we have. You'll see the number two there. I feel almost like she's a parent. Last week was the random one. Now it's two. I don't even want to know what happens when we get to three next week. But anyway, thank you for that, Debbie. I appreciate it. Okay, so I, here's how I want to start this morning. If you were not here last week, then you're kind of at a disadvantage because I want to pick it up where we left off last week. Okay, if you remember where the, the, the whole second part of the message, I was concentrating on Christian humility. Remember anybody? Okay, so we were talking about humility and how important it is for us as believers to show a little humility in our, in our approach uh, with particularly other believers. I think, and I could be wrong, sometimes I go back over things and I, I question them and did this go well, I'm not sure I said this well, and I, I pick it apart and I feel like I could have left a, a legitimate open question, and it's where I want to start this message. This is what I believe would be a legitimate question to someone, maybe not a seasoned believer, but someone who was listening to that message. They would say, well, isn't the most humble thing to do, wouldn't that just be to not draw any boundaries, not assume that you know anything, and you just leave others alone, right? I, to me, that's a legitimate question. It's not accurate, but it's a legitimate question. It seems like being, being humble would be to say, I don't really know, and I don't really know any more than you know, and so I'm just going to let you do your own thing. And by the way, this right here is exactly where a lot of American Christian churches are today. Now, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to swallow my pride, because that's their belief that the opposite of this, to tell other people how they should behave, to tell other people and proclaim what is right and wrong and good and bad and where those boundaries are, that's the definition of prideful. That's where a lot of people are. So I'm, I'm uh, cognizant, I'm aware of the fact that some of you may be left with that question. So let me answer that question. Actually, I don't need to. The answer to that question is really where we started this whole series. It's in Matthew chapter 28. Do you remember the very first week when we talked about this and we said we are going in whose authority? Jesus' authority. That's the point. This isn't my idea. These aren't my beliefs. These aren't my boundaries. I am simply proclaiming to you that he has all authority, that there is a king. You remember Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? There is a king and he is good. That's what I'm proclaiming to you. He makes the rules and he has commanded his followers to go out and make sure everybody knows. Listen, if there was a my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth, then absolutely me saying here are my boundaries and you all need to abide by those boundaries, that would be prideful. But the fact of the matter remains that we as believers understand there isn't my truth and his truth and your truth. There is the truth. We have found the truth and we are commanded to go out and proclaim the truth so that others can come to the knowledge of the same. In the, in the name of humility, too many of us as believers change and alter something that isn't ours. We don't have the authority to change this. If you submit to this, you proclaim it. 
It's not yours to alter it and to change it. I want you to consider it this way. Uh, we're going to play a game this morning. Everybody likes games. Uh, have you ever heard, um, well, you know what it is to cover a song, right? Bands will cover a, another band's songs. Like they'll be the original and then another band will come along and they'll redo the song. And sometimes you want to just strangle them and say, why couldn't you have just left it alone? So I've got three. Rolling Stone ranked these as the three worst cover songs of all time. Okay, so I'm going to play, there's like 15 second clips of these, and I want to know which one of these you think is the worst, and then we're going to come back to this and say, why was it the worst, all right? The first one, I think you'll know this tune from Mr. Don McLean. Can we play it, please? Church. Don't. You just outed yourself. Everybody around you, I cut it off. Okay, that is Don McLean's version of American Pie. Have you heard Madonna's version of American Pie? That, let's have it. Okay. All right, so that's option number one. Now, before you think that's the worst cover... This is a song by the Rolling Stones. I think you'll recognize I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Can we have this clip here? Okay. Uh, this is Britney Spears' version. Which one's worse, one or two? Two, I agree. This one though, before you make your final decision, I don't have the original of when Francis Scott Key performed the national anthem, but I think that most of us know that it's never been done better than 10 days into Desert Storm, the Super Bowl, Whitney Houston on the field. This is how that sounded. We'll call this the original. play more of this. So good. Not since I performed it at the Eastern High School track meet <laughs> has that song drawn more people into a religious patriotic fervor. Okay. So that was Whitney Houston uh, performing at the Super Bowl. This is the cover of the national anthem that was done at the NBA All-Star Game by a performer named Fergie. I gotta be honest, that song is, that version has driven me so close to expatriatism, just fleeing the country <laughs> altogether. Okay, 
Am I right in saying number three is the worst? Yes? Okay, thank you very much. All right, so the question is, why are covers bad? Here's why. When you change too many things about the song, when you change too much about the original, you get a completely different melody. Or if you change the lyrics to the song, you've got a completely different song than what the original was. Now, let's acknowledge something. There are good covers that are done. Or you can remix the original, remaster it with our modern technology, and you can actually bring it to life in a new generation. Some of these classic songs that are then remastered with everything that we can do with music now, it brings the sounds out and it remixes where you hear certain things, and it sounds incredible, right? But that's leaving the original story alone. If you do not submit to the melody, and Fergie did not submit to the melody at all, then you lose the song. And in her case, you lose people's patriotism and you lose people from the stadium and all of that. Details matter. That's the point that I want to make this morning. Details matter. Details of our faith matter. We said, if you remember this, that Christianity is not just a worldview. We are submitting to a person. Yes? Okay. We said that the truth that you and I discover and proclaim, that truth is painting a portrait of a person. When we proclaim this truth, we are painting a portrait to the world of who God in Christ is. The details matter of that. I just got done saying we are remastering a song that describes this person. Do you see why it is so critical that we are painting the right picture? Do you see why it's so critical that we are singing the right song? Otherwise, the world is going to hear of a different God entirely. We need to get the details right. Uh, I saw this story at the website that I write for. This isn't my story, but I saw this one this week. Uh, and, and maybe you heard the news like on Christian Post and all of that. Barner Research says only 4% of Americans now hold a biblical worldview. Which means, if you think this through, 96% of the people that we interact with... They don't have a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? Um, that the scriptures are completely reliable and trustworthy. They're authoritative. They're infallible. Um, that they are divinely inspired. Um, that Jesus was a real person born of a virgin. He died and he was buried and three days later he rose. That he's coming back again uh, one, one day. That Satan's a real being with real purposes. That's a biblical worldview. And only 4% of Americans express that. Okay, there's a lot more than 4% of Americans who go to church. You do realize this, yes? So a lot of the people that call themselves Christians do not operate with a biblical worldview. Now, if you read this story, you know what you would see? A major reason why they don't hold, they don't hold or adhere to a biblical worldview is because they've got this growing disdain or they've, they've grown a disdain for the details of Christian theology. Over time, they've been in that river of life and they've stopped doing what Hebrew says. They've stopped resisting and they've lifted their feet and they've gone along with some of what the world says. And slowly but surely, little pieces of Christian theology and our doctrine, the details of the faith, get picked off. And pretty soon, they no longer express a biblical worldview. The world current is saying what? The world current is saying that what we believe is not as important as what we do. And a lot of churches have embraced that. It doesn't really matter what we say and what we believe. What matters is what we do for others and what we do in the world. Well, here's the issue with that. You don't have to go to church to do the right things. There are people that do good things and they don't go to church. You don't have to take communion to do good things. And let me take it one step further. You don't have to believe in Jesus to do good things. There's a lot of folks who do good things who don't know Jesus. So what's the point of all of this? If what we believe 
isn't as important as what we do. Do you see what's happened to churches that have abandoned the importance of what we actually believe and the importance of proclaiming that for others? If you wonder why we're failing so bad at the Great Commission, it's because we've lost sight of the details, and the details matter. May I be so bold, if I can, to contrast that trend of the world with what this church has been doing. And I'm not crediting myself, I'm not tooting my own horn, because I'm hopeful, and I pray for this, and I hope you're praying for this as well, that it's the Holy Spirit that is directing what we're doing, and what we're learning, and what we're seeing. But what did we do all last year? All of last year, we did a, this, like this overarching series, and then there were three mini-series inside of it. Do you remember? We did the whole Be Like Jesus effort, and there were three parts of it. The first part of the year, we did this part, and then the second part, and then the third part. Do we remember this at all? If you remember, I'm going to leave number one blank. The second part of the year, we concentrated on acting like Jesus, that we need to act like him when we're out in the world. And the third step, we looked at his personality traits, the fruit of the spirit, and how we can become more like Jesus. But number one, before we can act like him and before we can become like him, does anyone remember what the first part was? Oh, thank heaven, somebody remembered it. That was going to be real. I was going to go out ashamed if nobody remembered. Yes, you have to think like Jesus. If you do not think like him, if you do not think right according to the scriptures, then you're not going to act like him and you will not become like him. You and I cannot emphasize following Jesus if we neglect what we think about him. We can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. The full counsel of scripture forbids us from severing our words, our thoughts, and our works, the things that we do. We can't sever those two things from one another. Obviously, it is not bad to show the world what Christians do. When there's a natural disaster, I love the fact that people can rely on looking up and seeing the relief trucks from churches continue to pour in because that's what Christians do. And that's a wonderful thing that Christians do that. But there's a reason why we do those things. And that reason is what we are to be proclaiming. Otherwise, all we're doing are acts of good. And what did Jesus point out? That there's something more important than the acts of good. You remember we talked about his miracle where he healed the guy. And he said, which is easier? To say, pick up your mat and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? What was the more important thing? Was the spiritual element to all of this? Knowing Jesus is more important than whatever good thing is being done for you. We need to carry that message. I feel like I'm not saying this well. If you are caring for someone who is in need, it's even more important that they understand why you are caring for them. And why you're caring for them is because you know a Savior. And they need to know that Savior as well because that will fix things in their life that are so much more important than this physical need that they are having filled at that point in time. Uh, I had a Facebook spat a few years ago. Um, this was back when I was uh, still arguing with people on Facebook because that's a really good use of your time. Um, but in this conversation, I, like this is a little embarrassing for me to share with you, like somebody calling me out. And there's parts of this that I needed to be convicted by. I, I'm not ignoring that. I'm not going to show you the full exchange. I just want to show you this comment that was made to me because there's something in here that is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Okay, you can't read that in the back. That's my design. You do nothing. He, he meant nothing. He wrote noting. I did not point that out in my response, by the way. I was not. I wanted to, but I didn't. You do nothing but talk about Christianity being right all while people starve everywhere around you. You eat your fill while homeless people in your own city go hungry. You don't know Jesus. 
If you did, you wouldn't spend another second telling me what Jesus says because you'd be too busy doing what Jesus did. Until you realize that loving people is your mission, you won't ever know the Jesus that you claim to serve. Okay, so it's harsh. Uh, They took me to the rack. But can I point out something about this? I don't want to get into why that was there and what the issue was. There's a part of this that I want you to see. And it's this part right here. Until you realize that loving people is your mission. I have a question about that. Loving people is my mission. My question to that statement right there is how do we know? How do we know what our mission is? How does he know what my mission is? How do I know what my mission is? Don't tell me, don't say to me, well, don't tell me what Jesus said. Just go and do what he did. Well, how do I know what the mission is? I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but when somebody says to you, forget doctrine and focus on your mission, theology is confusing, just share the gospel, there's a huge problem with that. Can anybody pick up on what the problem is without doctrine? You can't identify your mission. When you proclaim that our mission is to go out and to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son, that is doctrine. You are saying what you believe to be the mission. You can't understand the gospel without doctrine. Doctrine defines our mission. The details matter. And we have to acknowledge that. Remember one of the most significant exchanges in all of scripture. And there are some good ones. You remember when Jesus, this is in the book of Matthew. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? That's a doctrinal question. Who you say Jesus is, who you believe him to be, that's your theology. That's your doctrine. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah and the prophets. Okay, those are doctrinal answers that people are giving. The details of who they believe Jesus is. All right, but what about you? Jesus is asking, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, not Andrew, right? We're clear on that. Peter answered this one and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter proclaimed a doctrinal truth. He put it out there. Notice there are different details about who and what people believe that Jesus is. And to Jesus, those details mattered. He said, look, I understand what everybody else is saying about me. Who do you say that I am? And I'm telling you that he's looking at us saying, I know other people say all sorts of things about me, that I'm a good teacher, that I'm a prophet, that I was a bigot, whatever. Who do you say that I am? What is your answer to that question? That's your doctrine. That's your theology. And that stuff matters. In fact, this is what Jesus says in his prayer to the Father in John 17. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. That they know who you are. That they have a picture painted of you so that they can understand exactly who you are. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is knowing the Father. Is knowing that person that we submit to. When we speak of him, we are depicting the powerful creator of the universe. You better get that right. We better be on guard to make sure we are getting it right. That's why doctrine matters so much.
church. That's why Christians argue over doctrine. It's not because we don't like each other, at least it shouldn't be. It's because we want to get the details right. Uh, Jenny, my wife, coached basketball this year against my wishes. And it's, uh, when I say against my wishes, it's not that um, she's not uh, uh, doesn't know the sport. It's not that she's not good for the girls. It's not that she doesn't have the patience to deal with fifth graders. It's none of that. I didn't want her to coach because of the parents. I didn't want her to coach, and here's why. I did not want to hear people who don't know what they're talking about say bad things about her. I don't want to hear people who were not in the locker room, who were not at the practices say, well, I noticed that that person's playing a lot more. Why is the time not split evenly? And questioning her character and all that. Why, why is Bristol playing when she's only, you know, the size of a, you know, like a, why is she out there just running around all over the place? I didn't want to listen to that because she's my wife and I don't like it when people say that. It makes me mad to hear people misstate the facts and rep misrepresent someone that I love dearly. Why is doctrine so important to people? Why is it kind of appalling if doctrine isn't important to us? Because people are painting a picture of who your God and Father is. And if it is not an accurate picture, it's like people saying things about Jenny that aren't true. It should make you mad. Why did Wesley, maybe mad's the wrong word, but it should make you passionate. Why did Wesley and Whitfield use such strong language? I mean, these are Christians. And Wesley's saying, man, you're teaching blasphemy. And Whitfield says, I will not extend the hand of fellowship to you because you are teaching a different gospel. Why are they so passionate about that? I mentioned them last week. It's not petulance with one another. It is love and respect for the one that they are describing. You get this, right? You understand why details matter. Here's how we can know that that's true. I want you to flip to Luke, the 20th chapter. This is the passage I wanted to look at this morning where Jesus is confronting the Sadducees. And that is pronounced Sadducees. It is not Sadducees. Please do not say the Sadducees. Luke chapter 20. Now, what do we know as you're flipping there to Luke 20? What do we know about the Sadducees? Well, Luke actually writes later in the book of Acts that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. You know what this is? These are details. You know what this is? This is their doctrine. This is what they believe, their theology. Does it matter to Jesus what they believed? All right, this is the point. I want you to, they, are, they are there with Jesus in this scene and they're arguing with him. They're trying to prove that they're right and he's wrong. Because that's going to go well. All right? So they're there. They're going to prove to Jesus. I want you to look at verses 27 through 33 uh, right here. The resurrection and marriage. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they, they said, Moses wrote for us. Notice what they're doing. They're quoting scripture here. These are their scriptures. This is theology. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, so they're going to tell him a hypothetical. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, if there's this resurrection that you're talking about, do you see how this is going to violate the law of Moses? You see how this is all going to be messed up? At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It all falls apart, Jesus. Your little doctrine of resurrection collapses. That's their theology. It's what they believed, right? Okay, we all agree that that's a doctrinal question. Yes? I mean, it obviously is, so I'm going to assume that. I want to get to how Jesus responds in a second, but first, I want to show you how Jesus does not respond to this. 
They are saying to him, you proclaim there's a resurrection. We're telling everyone and teaching everyone there isn't a resurrection. There's not these spirits. There's not any of this stuff. Okay, here's how Jesus does not respond to that question. Guys, we just have two different views here. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the situation. The important thing is that we love God and that we love one another. We all believe scripture and we're all keeping Jewish custom. We disagree on a singular issue of resurrection, but none of you can really know for sure because you don't have the mind of God, right? So love is what matters, and let's focus on that. That is not what Jesus says. Now, some of you are snickering, but I want to point out to you that this is exactly what many in his church are saying on issue after issue after issue of doctrinal importance. We're saying things like, well, uh, we can't really know for sure. Jesus never spoke specifically about this particular issue. What matters is that we just love everybody. Let's not get caught up in all of the details. That has become the method of outreach that the church is using. And guess what? It isn't working. I mean, some churches are growing and they're winning people to their cause. But is their cause the authority of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his truth? I want you to look at what Jesus says. Pick it up in verse 34 in responding to them. Jesus replied, the people of this age, the one that we're all living in, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, the age to come, and in the resurrection of the dead, will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels that you don't believe in. I added that part, but he's, it's implied. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now look what he does here. But in the account of the bush, going back to Moses, even Moses showed that the dead rise. You love to quote Moses and you're using him as justification to say there is no resurrection. Do you know what Moses actually said? Or are you assuming, see what they're doing? They're relying on their own mind and their own thoughts and their rationality. They claim to love scripture. And Jesus is going to point out to them here, you don't know the scriptures. You're not relying on the scriptures. You're trying to come up with a worldly argument is what you're doing. Even Moses showed that the dead rised, uh, rise because he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why would Moses use those terms? Those guys are dead if there is no resurrection. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law, these would be the Pharisees who did not agree with the Sadducees. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. I would think so. Nobody's going to ask any more questions after that. Jesus forcefully refutes their error. They are in error and Jesus doesn't say, guys, it's okay. We're going to have different beliefs here. It doesn't really matter, ultimately, as long as you love each other and you love God. He tells them they were mistaken. And according to Mark, who records this same event, he repeats it at the end. You were mistaken about this. The details mattered to Jesus. Yes, I think it's pretty clear. So let's ask, why did the details matter to him? And what should that say to us? Number one, he teaches that there is doctrinal truth and doctrinal truth matters. You see that in his statement in the book of Mark. He says, you are greatly mistaken. No, you are way off here, guys, not even close. He is saying, make sure you follow this. You cannot be in serious doctrinal error and in a good relationship with the God of truth. 
He is the God of truth. Therefore, you must pursue that truth. You cannot stand in doctrinal error and not care about that and claim to be in a relationship with the God of truth. It doesn't work like that. But more, I don't want to say more important, but also his example. What does he demonstrate to us right here? When other people are in error of their beliefs, that matters. It matters and they need to be corrected. Otherwise, it's impossible to say that you love them. Don't proclaim to love them if you know that their feet are up and they're being swept towards destruction. And you say nothing? That isn't the way of Jesus. I, I go back to John Wesley and George Whitfield. These guys are going at each other hardcore. And we sit there and say, man, look at the bickering amongst Christians. Okay, I can't speak to how they actually personally treated one another because I wasn't there. But as far as them taking that firm stance... They're doing this as an act of love, number one, towards God, because the portrait of God we paint matters, and that is the most important. But number two, they believe the other one's in error, and they want to address that. That's an act of love that they are engaged in. Should it be tempered with humility and kindness? Of course it should. You know the characteristics of Jesus, but the details matter. Uh, I follow on Twitter, a, um, I've had good conversations with this guy. He's a progressive minister. Uh, he uh, leads what he calls an affirming church. That means people come in uh, w with uh, various lifestyles and gender identities and all of this, and they are affirmed. That, you, that is who you are, that's who God made you to be, and that's the way it should be, right? Um, this is what he posted this last week. He said, I just can't imagine a scenario where I meet Jesus face to face and he says, you loved people too much and you welcomed too many people into the church. Okay, I get where he's coming from here, but what does it all hinge on? It all hinges on what that means right there, right? What does it mean to love someone? Does it mean to ignore the details, to pretend that they don't matter? It mattered to Jesus, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commands. So if we love people, and we love people as Jesus loved people, then we have a responsibility not to tell people, you got to live like I want you to live, but to say there's a better way of living, and it's proclaimed here, and you will find release and freedom from all of those things that are hanging over your head. If you'll put your faith and your confidence and the Lord of Lords. It's true. There are some that we call essential doctrines. And there are some that we call non-essential. I, I got to be honest. When we talk about non-essential doctrines. That word always kind of freaks me out. I don't like it. Because it makes it sound like these are insignificant or inconsequential. And that's not the case. Take Wesley and Whitfield. Predestination or free will. Okay, those things impact how we live our lives. So they are very important. And there's a reason why we would argue about those things. But they don't rise to the level, many of them, of declaring that someone is out of the faith. Those types of things that we're talking about, those essential doctrines, things like the inspiration of Scripture and the Trinity and the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus and his substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection, how do we know that these things are essential truths? Because the Scriptures tell us that they are. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians? If there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. It all hinges on that. Number two, number two, Jesus teaches, and this is important, that the source of truth is the proper interpretation of Scripture. It's not human reason. 
I want you to notice the Sadducees in this account claim that they believe in the authority of Scripture. They're trying to quote Scripture, but what they really relied on was their own experience and their own understanding. And Jesus points that out over and over and over again. In Mark, he says, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? You are in error because you are not relying on the Word. You're relying on your own confidence in the flesh. The Sadducees were rationalists. And they could not accept anything that they themselves, anything that was beyond their minds. And certainly resurrection is beyond their minds. They've never seen a resurrected body walking around. That doesn't even make sense to them. So of course, that's outside of my realm. I've never seen angels. I've never seen any of that stuff. So it can't really be real. These are rationalists. And they're not leaving the confines of their own mind. And Jesus is saying, this God is a God beyond your limits. You need to open your mind to that reality and not confine yourself to what you can understand. Is that not precisely what the Proverbs teach? To trust in the Lord with all of your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Why? Because He knows the road. Why? Because He knows your heart. He knows. He is the truth. And that is is how we must follow the alternative. The alternative to this, trusting in yourself, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be Fergie. That's what's going to happen. You're all going to be a bunch of Fergies. We're going to change way too many notes. We're going to change way too many lyrics of the song that we're supposed to be singing. And that isn't good. Or how about this? I want you to try this. A simple, a simple uh, transcription mistake is being blamed for a tragedy earlier this year that will likely result in legal action and a shakeup in industry protocols. This is from a medical journal. The Minnesota Department of Health reports that a long-term care resident of Golden Living Nursing Care Facility with a history of stroke and atrial fibrillation had been placed on a combination of therapy and the drug warfarin. A nurse transcribing the patient's warfarin order accidentally submitted it under another resident in a neighboring facility. The simple error went unnoticed by the staff at both facilities. For nine days, the patient who should have been receiving uh, warfarin did not, resulting in respiratory failure and a fatal stroke. The patient who received the warfarin accidentally began to experience heavy bleeding, weakness, vomiting, and a host of other medical issues. The sudden onset of those symptoms went undiagnosed, and that patient died shortly thereafter. Okay, that is a tiny tiny transcription error and it cost the lives of two individuals just a tiny detail that someone messed up and it cost two people their lives satan is messing with the details and the medical orders and there are a lot of people who are suffering these symptoms as a result and they don't even realize what's happening you and i know the details you and i know the truth Will we be the whistleblower or will we sit silently? Church, the details matter. Father God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your doctrine and I pray that we would strive to make your doctrine our doctrine. That we would not rely on the hand of flesh, the mind of man. That we would trust in your word, properly interpreted and properly understood. And may we contend for that faith that has been once for all entrusted to the saints. Father, may this be our guide and may we proclaim it to the world unashamed. This is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said.